You're listening to The Comedy Cellar, live from the table, on the Riotcast Network, riotcast.com. is live from the table the official podcast of new york's famous comedy cellar in greenwich village new york we are coming to you via zoom and via sirius xm 99 raw dog here tonight noam is here even though i'm giving the introduction but noam didn't want to do it for some reason periel is here and we have uh, satish um what's your last name now you know why i didn't want to do it all right. Um, <laughs> Palai. 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 He is a, a uh, specialist in, uh, he's a physician. No, I'm not a physician. No, I'm a scientist. I'm not a he's physician. A scientist and yeah. uh, a specialist in HIV, I believe. That's right. But yeah. obviously can probably help uh, shed a little bit of light on Corona because uh, he's in the virus space, if you He's will. a virologist. I am a virologist, yeah, and, and just to be clear, I am, you know, my historical expertise is not in uh, coronavirus. Uh, I'm, I've been mainly focused on HIV and retroviruses in general, um, but yeah, hopefully I've picked up a little bit of generalized And then the other thing is, um, as of about two weeks ago, I'm working on this virus as well, because uh, me, just like pretty much every other virologist I know, um, we've all kind of decided to temporarily put down what we're doing to really nucleate around um, the challenge of the day. Um, and so uh, I've been doing a lot of homework in the last couple of weeks to learn everything I can about the, the biology of this virus and what we can do about it. Just a quick question about HIV before we uh, jump into yeah. uh, the news of the world. Um, is the HIV virus of 2020 the same HIV virus that was wreaking utter havoc in, in, the 19, in the early 1980s, or is it a mutated, less lethal form? Awesome question. That is a really, really awesome question, which is actually a controversial question. Um, the, I would say that there's no conclusive evidence that it is either more or less virulent than it was. So there have been uh, many people that I've known over the years that have tried to do these massive meta-analyses of data sets to look at um, how quickly people lose their T-cells in the modern era versus in the old era, or look at how high patient viral loads are um, in the modern era versus 20 years ago. Um, and here's the big caveat. If you, you have to look specifically at people that are not on small molecule drugs, right? Because that's changed the whole ballgame. But if you look at untreated HIV disease, I would say that there are little hints here or there, but there, there's no real conclusive evidence that the, the virulence or the transmissibility of the virus has changed appreciably. There's anecdotal evidence from regional epidemics, but overall, I would say it's very similar. Okay, interesting. So it's... it's, it's a, yeah, it's, a, it's I was gonna say, the game changer, of course, has been the advent of, uh, of highly active antiretroviral therapy in the late 90s, you know, which really changed it from a death sentence um, to something that's theoretically a chronic condition that you could manage with, with daily drug therapy if, and this is the, the big if, if you're lucky enough to live somewhere and have the resources to obtain um, the small molecule drugs for the rest of your life. Uh, okay, it, it, well, yeah, no, go ahead, Dan. I, go ahead. Oh, do you have any, any question about that topic? Well, it's sort of, I mean, it's kind of related, like, so we have HIV, which is this really, was really, really deadly virus, but it was hard to get. And then you have this coronavirus, which is 
far less deadly, but is very easy to get. What happens when those two things happen at the same time? Is that, is that something that could happen? Ooh, that's a good question. It's an excellent question. And um, I would say this virus is already in territory that's uh, kind of an interesting ratio of those two things. So usually there's a trade-off between lethality and then transmissibility, right? Why? So, is there a reason for that? Or is that just luck? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what the reason is. So, I mean, the truth is the last thing a virus wants to do is kill its host, right? Because um, it wants to, number one, continue to make a living. And number two, it wants, to, it wants the opportunity to jump from one host to the next host. So really, what, what a virus wants to do is just maximize its opportunity to jump from one person to the next person to the next person to the next person. And so what happens is if a virus is too lethal, and so it, it you know, brings about the demise of its host too quickly, it'll lose out on a lot, lot of opportunities for transmission because you know, that, that host is only around for a little bit. There's not much of a chance for that host to disseminate the virus. Um, but here's the converse of that. If a virus is really not virulent at all, and you know, it infects an individual, but then it's just kind of replicating at a background level, it's just sort of hanging out at a low level, then the likelihood of it being successfully transmitted to another individual is low also. So viruses are constantly walking this balance point between being virulent enough to produce enough virus to have the opportunity to jump to another host, but not producing so much virus um, that you kill the host very quickly and you lose those opportunities. Is it, it would, sorry, would it be possible to have a virus that had the lethality of AIDS, but it took, it, but it took time so that it had the opportunity to jump to other people, but was easily transmissible? I think the opportunity does exist. And, I, and here's what I think, and this is kind of one of the lessons that we're learning from this virus, is a lot of the combinations that we've seen of transmissibility, uh, virulence, pathogenicity, these things, um, we haven't seen everything, right? I mean, I, I think that we will continue to see pathogens that occupy a balance point between these features, like viral load in the host, lethality and transmissibility that we have not seen. And there are no firm rules, really. There are no well, firm rules. You can say that in the, year, in, the, in the thousands of years of human civilization, so far, nothing has come along to wipe us out. Oh, I mean, well, when you say wipe us out, something that's taken all of us out entirely? No, but because we're, uh, we're, we're still here. But I think that there's probably, it's very hard to prove, but I think there's decent circumstantial evidence that, you know, throughout like the evolution of hominids, that we've been attacked with um, what you could consider to be sort of uh, ancestors of HIV, like essentially other retroviruses that have caused massive epidemics um, in, in early humans which has, has probably uh, resulted in several different evolutionary bottlenecks. So there probably have been viruses historically, like prehistorically, that have decimated uh, hominids along the way where, you know, maybe a small number of individuals could get through the, the hatch. And, you know, th this is a theory that's been bounced around, and I, I want to make it very clear that this is a theory. Uh, you know, I don't think there's any hardcore evidence of this, but I'm sure you're very familiar with the story of, like, the smallpox-laden blankets, right? You know, uh, yes, so there's kind of a, a version of that I, I've heard, um, you know, with, with Neanderthals, for instance. You know, there's some possibility that, you know, if Neanderthals and, and uh, Homo sapiens really did coexist for a period of time, and if their populations um, overlapped in both time and space, you know, I've, I've heard some theories, not very well-founded theories, but one possibility is that uh, their demise was actually brought about, you know, through the transmission of a, of a pathogen that, that, you know, maybe pushed them over the edge. And the other thing I'd like to bring up that I think is a really important piece of circumstantial evidence. So if you look at the human genome, right, somewhere between 8 to 12% of the human genome 
is actually just fossilized retroviruses, okay? So literally more than one-tenth of our, our genome uh, are, are just fossilized archived remnants of retroviruses, so essentially viruses that are architecturally similar to HIV that infected us um, thousands to millions of years ago. Um, and basically what happened along the way is the virus went through a process called endogenization, where it just got usurped into the human genome and became part of our germline. And essentially the virus stopped being an invading pathogen and really just became part of who we are genetically. Um, that's that's a science fiction. It's freaking like science fiction. It really is like science fiction. It really is. By the way, I hear the term, what does retrovirus mean as opposed to... Uh Nothing to do with that uh, from the 70s. Current viral. No, and actually there's some cool, I mean, really nerdy memes, but I've, I've seen a couple of like nerdy memes, memes about retroviruses where there's like a virus dressed in disco gear with like a big like fro. <laughs> um, it's really awesome. But so the, the definition of a retrovirus is that the, um, the genome is uh, composed... Ribonucleic. Uh, is ribonucleic acid. That's exactly right. So the genome is composed of ribonucleic acid, but there are lots of viruses, for instance, like coronavirus. Um, whose genomes are composed of ribonucleic acid, which is RNA. But the, the canonical defining feature of a retrovirus is that the um, RNA genome is, quote, retrotranscribed back into DNA. So part of its life cycle is, even though its core genetic material is encoded in RNA, um, all of these viruses encode a protein or an enzyme that, that copies, Xerox copies their RNA back into DNA. And then that DNA is then stitched into the genome of its host, which is really a trip, right? So that, that, and that's why they're called retroviruses because they retrotranscribe the RNA into DNA. I gotta say, you sound like you know what you're talking about. Everything you've just said could be complete, uh, completely uh, made up. <laughs> I just sound really convinced, I don't know anything. I just, I imagine- You sound legitimate. I, Cause I always, you know, Periel said, oh, I know this guy. And I, you know, what Periel knows you, I always just assume, you know, uh, the worst, but uh, I'm kidding, of course. But, <laughs> So, okay, so somebody just, somebody literally just uh, texted me a column by, uh, a scathing column by Ann Coulter. Oh, God. Okay. Well, and hear her out. So she, I mean, you can look it up, but essentially she says that, um, first of all, she does a little dig at Dr. Fauci. In 1987, Uh he warned that French kissing might transmit the AIDS virus. Health officials, quote, health officials have to presume that it is possible to transmit. Well, that, that's, that's presumption to be made extra safe. You can't really fault them for that. Yeah. Then by 1992, after a decade-long epidemic with more than a million infections, the CDC could find only 2,300 cases of white heterosexual transmission of AIDS. And, and then she goes on to make the point, and then she talks about how the average age of death in Italy is 79.5 mm-hmm. years old. Okay. Drawing a parallel, which is, you know, which is a, is a fair, is a fair thing to consider that, uh, like I lived through that. There was a time when AIDS came when we all thought we have to stop having sex. We're all going to, we're all going to die. And then finally, when the dust settled, we realized no heterosexuals really didn't have to go through all that. And she's kind of making the point that she thinks that, um, uh, she thinks that this is really a, 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 a almost no, I think she said zero people under 30 have died or something in Italy. And she's, uh, you get the point. She's making the point that we're overreacting to it and that we should just be addressing this as a very old person's problem. What do you say? So, so first of all, there are components of that that border on truth uh, and a lot of it that's not. So basically what we know you know, all of these things are probabilities. And there's no doubt, if you look at all of the epidemiologic data that have been collected 
in China, South Korea, Italy, anywhere this virus has been, there is a heavy bias in the data. So the, um, the older you are, uh, the greater the probability that the infection will lead to either severe disease or death. Um, there's no doubt. So if you look at like the data from China, you know, if you're above, forgot what the cutoff is, but if you're above 80 years old, it's like 15% mortality, whereas it's a small fraction of that if you're 40 years old. Right. Um, so there, there, it's, it's inarguable that, that, that if you're elderly, the likelihood that you'll encounter your demise um, if you encounter the virus is higher. However, I guarantee you that there are tons of people all around the world right now that are either intubated or are dying that look like all of us right here that are in, in our age groups. Um, there's, there's certainly uh, statistical differences in the, in the proportions of people in different age groups, but there are lots of people around the world right now that are severely ill or dying that, that are much younger and that are, uh, that are younger than us. So, so let, me add, let me add into the, I don't know if you can see that, I, I can share the screen, but I'll just add into it because I, I also got, I got this from um, not an Ann Coulter fan. This is from a, uh, a mainstream uh, st statistical guy. This is New York City COVID-19 death. I was going to add this into this mix. Yep. Um, over 75, 103, that's 52%. 65 to 74 is 46. Under 64 is, 40, is 23%. Um, but this is underlying illnesses. Nine, 166 out of all these deaths, 95% had underlying illnesses. No underlying illnesses. I, percent. So the, the, uh, if you have other comorbidities, um, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, uh, you are at a very significantly uh, elevated risk of, of dying as a result of coronavirus infection. That, that, that's all true. So I guess my question, and I guess with this, maybe this would be Ann Coulter, but so my question is, you know, let's say all this information is true. How does this affect what the choices that we make as a society? That's, that's exactly my question to you. So, so you know, and, and actually I've had this conversation with people that are dear friends, to be honest, because I've actually talked to some people that, you know, are very close to me and stuff who've just been like, you know, well, uh, you know, every once in a while you got to thin the herd, bro. And I, I, I don't know, it's like, uh, I, I frankly can't even think that way. So I, although I'm not a physician, um, I, since I'm a biomedical scientist, I'm married to a physician and I'm very, I work very closely with, with clinicians. I, I think really from a medical perspective and to me, our society's number one goal uh, should be to minimize the number of people that die. And I, I sincerely believe if that is the number one goal that we want to ascribe to, that we want to minimize the number of people that die right now, the, the, we have no choice but to just take this social distancing theory, uh, uh, business just as seriously it's as possible. Teeth. I mean, obviously, uh, if we really wanted to minimize the number of people, the number of deaths, whether from this or anything else, we just all stay home and no, now we wouldn't drive a car and we wouldn't do anything. So obviously, there has to be some risk that is taken. There has to be some risks, but you know, I've heard from some people, it's like, well, you know, since the risk is so skewed towards the elderly, why don't we just kind of keep trucking and maybe, and maybe the other thing we could do is, you know, try to do our best to selectively quarantine the people who are at greatest risk for the disease. Uh, and I just don't believe that that would work. And I just think that there's some major ethical, uh, ethical problems with that. And here's the other thing is that, you know, and I know that uh, Dr. Fauci has said this many times and, you know, other talking heads, but, you know, let's even say that people who are, you know, 25 years old, uh, you know, they're unlikely to die when they, when they contract this infection. So go to the beach, whatever. Okay. So what they're doing, even if they're not going to succumb to the virus themselves, they, 
they are, they are amazing vectors for the disease, so they're spreading it everywhere. And then what's going to happen is you have every single hospital bed, every single ICU bed, every single emergency room just filled to the gills, and you have people spilling it out onto the streets. So when these people uh, end up breaking bones or bleeding for some other thing, like a car accident or a drug overdose or anything else, they're screwed, right? They don't, there are no more critical care facilities to give anybody else. And so it does directly affect the people that may not be directly killed by the virus. And I would say dramatically if we didn't do the social distancing thing. I was reading, you know, I was, I'm reasonably confident that I wouldn't die from this thing. I mm-hmm. think I, I think you would have been that thought for a while. And then I started reading about people that didn't die, mm-hmm. but went through horrific experiences and had to, mm-hmm. to say the least, a very bad week after contracting this yeah. virus. And what, what's insidious about it from what I've read, is unlike a flu, a flu at least has the decency <laughs> to be straight up with you. Yeah. And, as you. And it says, here's what I got. And it hits you all at once. This yeah. virus, what I've read, it starts off like Ali. He's yes. fucking, he's dancing. He I like that. A little fever. <laughs> he gives you a little bit of a cough. Not yep. so bad. But you have no idea. And then for a couple of days, you're just, you got a cough, you got a fever, but it's okay. And then one day you wake up and you can't breathe. Yep. Or maybe you don't wake up in your camp. You don't know. You don't. you don't know where it's going. So I wake up tomorrow, I've got a fever, and, and I don't feel that bad, but I'm petrified because I think in three days I could wind up in the ICU. Yeah, so I think it, it, it's, so, it's so insidious. Like the pathology and the disease. The food just tells you, here's what I got. And you were like, okay. I, I, I totally hear you. And I love your, your Ali anal- analogy, but um, yeah, it is just much more insidious and cryptic uh, disease progression than, than seasonal influenza. That, that scares the crap out of me. So I totally agree with you. You know, even if I didn't feel like there was a great chance that I would die if I contracted this thing, uh, it, it, it scares the, the daylight out of me, the idea of getting infected by it. And the thing that I really hate about this virus, um, the whole idea that, I mean, there's very compelling evidence that people who are completely asymptomatic, you know, are transmitting this virus like gangbusters. And that really sucks. I mean, that is a, that is a major public health challenge when you can't use something like a, you know, stick a thermometer to somebody's forehead and determine whether they're at risk to society. You know, if there are no obvious symptoms, that is a really, really mo- a monstrous challenge to deal with um, uh, in the public I, health. I got space. a couple of questions. Uh, uh, first of all, also, do we know, just as an aside, people don't die, but I've read some things that said there might be um, permanent lung damage from this the, from thing. I've heard anecdotal reports. I haven't seen myself. I haven't seen any uh, like peer-reviewed publications yet that have described that, but I've definitely heard things anecdotally that there might be permanent damage. And so I can tell you a little about this, not based on my own experience, but I, I'm actually working more and more closely with, um, with pulmonologists and people who are doing like pulmonary, like airway epithelial research, because uh, I think, you know, for me as a, a, a basic virologist to uh, make any sort of dent in this um, COVID disease business, I need to pair with people who understand how lungs work. And so I've been doing more and more of that. And really, I think what might be one of those things is that during this lung injury process that this um, viral infection can induce in the setting of severe disease, you actually get uh, the development of fibrosis in the lung, right? And you Which know, fibrosis, what? I'd say it's kind of a fancy word for scarring. And so when you get scarring in the lung, you're irreversibly depriving certain regions of your lung of, of functional capacity. And so the way I like to think about it, you know what alveoli are? Yeah. Those are those little like, you know, little air sacs all over your lung. Like I, I saw the movie Fantastic Voyages. Grapes all over your lung. And essentially what happens is 
you get scarring you know, on the surfaces of a lot of those grapes. And so you no longer get efficient exchange of, of uh, oxygen across, across those alveoli. So um, it, uh, it, and it irreversibly de deprives the capacity of those alveoli to function as they should because you get permanent scarring and there. Something that All right, so, so let's go back to the difficult philosophical. So like 40,000 people die of uh, auto accidents every year, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, we, could, we could save tremendous amount of lives by lowering the speed limit on the highways to 20 miles yeah. an hour. And obviously we don't do that. But so, so, there, so as much as we don't want to talk that way, if we don't have to talk about it, we do know that underneath, underneath it all, we are trading lives for, for economy all yeah. the time. So let's, so let's yeah. talk about this. Yeah. Um, much of, I think much of what you want to see happen here has to include your estimation of how quickly we're going to have a solution. Because if you could tell me, listen, it's going to be this way for 18 months. We're not going to develop any therapies and we're not going to develop a vaccine for 18 months. Yep. Uh, I think we'd have to let it out, right? We'd have to say, oh shit, I guess we're just going to have to find some way best we can to protect the old people and the people with pre-existing conditions, but we're not going to live this way for 18 months. Yep. So I I'm with you. I'm sorry to keep talking about, give just one second. I'm with you that I err on the side of life. I find it impossible to think the way that that we're describing. But yeah. just because we don't think that way doesn't mean reality isn't that way. Sure. So what do you see? How are you yeah. trading this all up? Like, how long do you let it go on? At what point would you say, are you extremely optimistic about a therapy? Like, there's got to be some reason that yeah. you have a lockdown indefinitely. You must have some end game. So there's a few things. So let's, let's take the worst case scenario, right? Worst case scenario is, you know, uh, therapeutics vaccines take a long time. There is another mechanism that comes into play here, which is just the idea of natural human, human immunity and, and herd immunity that's independent of um, any human interventions, right? And so what I mean by that is like, uh, I mean, let me ask you this, like, if influenza comes along every year, you know, everybody should be vaccinated for influenza. And frankly, that's still the smartest thing you can do right now in the setting of this, just to make that clear. But even if, you know, people aren't vaccinated for influenza, you know, you won't have like some of the modeling estimates you've seen. You won't have millions of people in America die in any given year from influenza. And the reason is that most of the time we've seen versions of the virus um, that are similar to what's circulating. So we have some, some degree of immunity towards the virus that minimizes the damage it can do to us, right? And some of the exceptions, obviously, the, the 1918 Spanish influenza, you know, that was like, uh, you know, putting everybody in a toaster. The, uh, and then the other thing was even the, you remember the swine flu came along and it was the same kind of deal, you know, where we didn't have any immunity to it. But really, once this thing uh, is transmitted through large swaths of humanity, I do think that there will be hopefully protective immunity in, in a large fraction of the individuals so that that right there will cut down on the overall transmissibility of the virus because the ratio of susceptible hosts to protected hosts will be um, uh, low enough that you won't just have it spreading like wildfire through the community. How long? Well, so on. So there's one assumption there too. The assumption there is that people who get infected with this virus cannot get reinfected by it. And that's a critical thing. And I think that remains to be fully demonstrated. There's, there's data from like monkey models and stuff where they've infected uh, animals you know, with um, you know, versions of this virus rechallenge those animals afterwards and they were protected from it. So I just really, really hope that that holds true in the human population. That but, would be sort of unprecedented. That would be unprecedented, wouldn't it? Because for a virus to be able to reinfect 
the same virus to reinfect the person? Isn't that sort of how viruses never work that way? And viruses usually confer immunity, do they not? So there's two things. One way that viruses can slip around that is if a virus has a really high evolutionary rate, um, the, uh, the immune responses that you mount against it could be useless the next time you see the strain because it's just moved away from its genetics just enough that there's not cross-reactivity. And frankly, that's kind of what happens with influenza to some small degree, right? Like the reason why we have to get vaccinated for influenza every year is that influenza continually mutates and so, um, as you said, we're still partially immune. Wait, 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 Dan, but let, let's, 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 partial immune. But, but actually, just to, yeah, but to answer that question, it is not unprecedented. So there are viruses. So if you look at um, viruses like, um, you know, there's, you know, some examples with like chikungunya virus or dengue virus, sometimes the, the immune responses that you mount against those viruses, like the antibodies, for instance, that you mount against those viruses, they may not help you when you see an, another strain of that same virus later on. And sometimes, weird things happen where it can even make the infection worse. So I wouldn't say it's unprecedented. I'd say, I'd say it's hopefully unlikely, and I'm, I'm optimistic that that won't be the case, but it is not impossible. It is not impossible. Right. So, so how long for, how long, how yeah. long, we're getting, we're trying to think about a time frame here. So how long before herd, herd immunity is sufficiently built up that you'd be ready to uh, end the economic lockdown? The short answer to that one is I don't know because there are a lot of assumptions that would go into how we predict that that we don't know. And so the, the things that we need to know there is uh, what essentially what the uh, immunity looks like after people have been infected. And that's what my lab and lots of other labs are working on right now where we're collecting tons and tons of samples from people that are getting infected so that we can characterize what level of immunity they have against the pathogen, which will give us the numbers we need exactly to predict that. Okay, but anyways, that was the worst case scenario. So in terms of therapeutics and vaccines, like Dr. Fauci keeps saying, and I 100% think he's right on this, vaccines will take a while because you need to go through very rigorous testing and um, you're manipulating the immune system you know, in, in ways that can have unpredictable consequences. And so you really need to go through a long and arduous trial process to make sure that you're not gonna accidentally kill a bunch of people by introducing vaccine into the population. I think it would be unlikely to see a, a, an effective vaccine that's disseminated in, in less than a year. I do think it would be like a year and some months before we see that. But then there's a whole kitchen sink of other um, therapeutics that are being developed, including like uh, many small molecule drugs. Um, and a lot of these drugs are, are, are drugs that are already on the shelf that were generated for other diseases. Um, so they've already been through like phase one and phase two. Uh, clinical trials. And, and so we already have data on like safety and tolerability of those drugs. And right now they're being rigorously tested to see if they have, uh, if they're, they're able to save uh, the lives of people with COVID-19 disease. Those ones, so there's so many different clinical trials. I don't even know the number at this point. There's so many clinical trials of small molecule drugs and biologics right now. Um, so if any of those really show promise in these clinical trials in just like the next, uh, that next couple of months, I think there's a possibility that those ones could just get ramped up and they could get slammed into the human population quicker than a vaccine can. So let me see if I understand, I correctly understand what you're saying. There's a very good chance in your mind that over the next two to three months, some therapies will be developed, which will flatten the mortality rate by half, let's say, okay. such that when we let people out, we'll be letting them out into a danger which is closer to what we're used to with the flu even st it'll maybe still more than the flu, but, but a lot closer to the flu than it is now. I think that is possible. I think there's no guarantees, but I think- But that's it, what we're hoping for. If we, if, we knew really the answer, 
for, we have good reason for hope. We have good yeah, reason if, for hope. If we knew the answer to that was no, yeah, then we might just have to let this out, right? We can't, we can't stay home for a year. We can't. It does seem pretty impossible to sustain human society if nobody's going out of their house uh, for a year. But I, I, I don't feel like I'm equipped to make that kind of a, a, a policy call. And again, once again, coming from the biomedical perspective, my number one thing is saving lives. But of course, even from a modeling perspective, at some point, people starving to death will, could start exceeding the rate of people getting killed by the infection. I don't, think, I, I don't think we're at a stage where we need to entertain that number right now based on all the things that are happening. Well, That's thank God we, have a, we have a deep philosophical, empathetic mind like Donald Trump to make this decision for oh, God. us. <laughs> God help us. I, I mean, yeah, that, it's really the perfect storm that this virus showed up on our shores during this administration. It's, well, I, I, I'm confident. He may not be as heartless as we, as we think. I'm confident is. that Trump, uh, if he's told by Fauci in no uncertain terms that this is insanity, yeah. Yeah. won't do it. And even if he does, who's leaving their house? I'm not. I mean, if well, we, you know. that's exactly right. And, you know, people have made that point that, um, you know, how did this country get shut down? Frankly, it didn't really get shut down by Trump. It got shut down by city, county and state uh, level officials who really decided to uh, take the reins. And, Can and take I add to that? And, yeah. and, I'm, and, and you know, I, I feel bad knocking the president. I was trying to make a joke, but I, I, I actually I'm not one who thinks that he's a, a monster. Uh, I think he's he's struggling with it. He, but um. Uh, no, I lost my train of thought. What, what, what did you just say? <laughs> we're saying, when, no, we're just saying that, so even if Trump says, okay, it's, East, it's Easter time and Easter is a, you know, it's a beautiful day, uh, you know, and, and he decides to open the floodgates, I, I think that a lot of state and county and- Oh, uh, I remember, yeah. So, will, so, will say no, you know, we, we don't care. So, so President, I mean, uh, Governor Cuomo, who, you know, they're talking about drafting him to be the next Democratic nominee because his, his manner and his demeanor is so impressive. Mm -hmm. Yet, yet, every order that he's given has been about two weeks too late. Mm -hmm. He was advocating uh, groups of 500. He, he limited uh, groups of 500 or more when the CDC, when the federal government was already recommending 50 or more. And really, the CDC was too late. It should have been 10 or more. I can't for the life of me understand how uh, New York wasn't just completely locked down weeks before when it was. I think that they that was a real missed opportunity. And very tragically, they're paying the, the price for that right now. I think that was a real error in judgment. Um, no, actually, I was just talking to my friend from yeah. college who, you know, we were talking about Trump's reaction to this, and I was giving Trump the benefit of the doubt and saying that, uh, you know, he, he, like most of us, like the governor, like a lot of people, underestimated this. And my friend is, is more convinced that Trump is just an evil man that nah. considered his election prospects more important than the lives of Americans. It, that makes no sense. Even if even if you view him as a, um, a venal guy, he has his businesses to it. I mean, why why would he want the? Yeah, and no, I, I frankly don't think he's evil either. And I think evil, you know, that's just like an oversimplification. You know, well, is any evil at least? I, I just, but I do think that he's. I just don't have really any faith in his his judgment, and I really don't think that the interest of the the common American citizen is is really his number one uh, you know priority. But but one thing I will say, you know, regardless of whether he's evil or whatever. You know, one thing that I think has been completely inexcusable um, in the way that this epidemic has been managed, and I can't, as a scientist, I just, there is no obvious reason why this had to be the case. It is bogus that we are this insanely wealthy country with some of the most brilliant minds on the planet. And we essentially were caught with our pants down with absolutely no testing capacities here when this virus arrived. That makes no sense. We knew this virus was coming here. What was that? 
that wasn't Trump's fault. Well, I, I, I don't know whose fault it is. I mean, so I, th- I, I think it's multiple people's faults, but I think that um, I, I, he's got to be at least partially to blame for that. I mean, it is not uh, developing these tests is frankly not rocket science. It's really an infrastructure motivation kind of problem. And, you know, you could you look at the difference with South Korea, right? Like they had, you know, millions of tests uh, poised and ready to go when the, when the epidemic was, was. We had a defective test. How could the president possibly have the expertise to to be responsible for that. No, so the president's responsibility is clearly not at that micro scale level where he should be like you know, benchmarking and validating tests. It's literally making sure the resources are going where they need to, to just start generating a, a crap load of tests and then doing aggressive benchmarking oh. before the virus blossomed. So that's my question. How, how are we suddenly a third world country? Because I talk to doctors all day long who are in the New York City hospitals who are screaming for masks. Yeah. And where are the tests? What, how long does it take to make a fucking test? I, I totally agree with you. And it, it doesn't. I mean, these things, you know, it's a simple process. This nucleic acid detection thing is a simple process called you know, real-time PCR, quantitative PCR. It requires a little bit of tweaking, but it is not rocket science. And there is absolutely no reason why we shouldn't have had millions of tests in place early in the game. And the personal protective equipment thing for doctors is just batshit crazy. And my wife's a physician. She's going to work, you know, every day. She has essentially no access to, uh, to PPE. She's not an ER or an ICU doctor. So I guess she's considered kind of, uh, you know, a second level priority to get, but still she's going to a hospital every day and she doesn't have access to PPE unless if we scrounge it up from like a hardware store that has an extra mask or something. It's bogus. It's totally bogus that that's happening here. It how, is. how is that continuing to happen though? How is that possible? I think, you know, and he, there's been a constant discussion about this whole defense production, you know, act thing where the federal government has to come in and just say, General Motors, this factory, that factory, you know, your job is just to crank out masks and respirators all day. Have a good day. And like, you know, he keeps saying this thing that, oh, it's like, you know, I don't need to do that because they're voluntarily coming to the table. But clearly something's not happening here because I can tell you, uh, not only is my wife a doctor, but my wife is close friends with uh, physicians all over the country. And actually, Perry, you would love this. Have you heard of the Physicians, uh, physicians Mothers Group? No. You should totally look up phys- the Physicians Mothers Group. It is, I think, one of the most powerful lobbies and just a bunch of brilliant badasses in the country. Um, but they, you know, she's part of this network uh, across the whole country. Um, and just everybody's saying the same thing. Nobody has access to uh, personal protection. Let me, let me push back on that. I, I would be sold on that except for one inconvenient fact, a couple inconvenient facts, but one particularly that I was looking at the curves of uh, Europe, of, of Germany, Spain, I think France and Italy. Uh-huh. And in terms of the, the curves of how many days before the number of cases double in those countries. Yep. And they're smack right up next to ours, two days. I think, I think Germany is, two, is a few hours longer than us, meaning that these European countries with non-Trump leaders, with industry, Germany is a pretty uh, able manufacturing company, uh, uh, manufacturing country of its own. Um, that is a good counterfactual, and they are not doing any better than we are. So it's hard for me to understand why we would be so much better than Germany, even if we were doing things right. So maybe we've been doing somewhat better. And I do think that Trump probably didn't uh, take this as seriously as he should have. I think that probably that any president might have done that. You know, at, at any given time, there are 
a thousand different one in a thousand type tragic events that could happen. Mm-hmm. And, the, and they're on there, you need to do this. The same thing with 9-11, you know. And, and then when one of them happens, it's very easy to work backwards and say, you see, he didn't take care of this. It's like, it's like the last chapter in a mystery novel. Once you know who did it, you look backwards and it all seems so obvious. But out of all these urgent things going on in the world that he was supposed to know right now that he should be worrying about testing for, you know, the Wuhan virus, when um, many credible left-wing places were discounting it and, you know, CNN was talking about how this is not going to be so serious. And NPR had an article about how this isn't so serious. And, and all of a sudden, when it does, when, the, when our number did come up, this, this, low, this high, you know, highly improbable thing did happen, it's very easy to say he should have known. But as I say, if the other countries were doing better, now it's true the Asian countries are doing better, mm-hmm. but they've been through this before. So as soon as it began to bubble up, they're like, shut everything down, shut everything down, get the testing, because they learned from their mistakes. We've never been through this. Believe me, next year, if this happens again, we're not gonna, we won't be in the same situation again. But how come, I mean, fair enough, but how come even now we're not, now that we know what we need, how long does it take to make these tests? How long does it take to get masks? They're ramping it up very quickly now. I've been I mean, saying that for days, and I just don't see. That, I, I don't, it sounds like you're from the front lines. It doesn't yeah. sound like they're ramping anything up quickly. Well, that's why. Why do you think there's so many more cases in New York? Because of more. But why tests. don't the doctors still have masks? That I don't know about masks. I think. I think they. I think that there is some sort of. Um, first of all, there's two things I hear about. I don't know what's true, what's not. The supply chain for all these things is no longer wholly within the United States. To make a mask, you have to get things from other countries now and so we're we're at the mercy of the the world demand on these supply chains um and then the other thing is that it does take a while to get i mean to to get things going in a couple of weeks is is hard and then there are surpluses that the federal government has and they probably don't want to give them out until they know exactly exactly where they're needed because like if i had 10 masks I would be, if, if I gave them out easily, I just know then they'd be given out easily and all of a sudden they'd be gone. If, if you give 100 masks to a hospital now, everybody, let's be honest, they're going to grab them, take them to their families, give them to their sister-in-law, whatever it is. These, these masks are very, have to be treated very, very carefully now. So the government, I, I think, if they have a short number, they need to know, we need, this hospital needs them now. Get them there. That's, I don't know. I would, I would take, uh, I, I would actually fight you on that last point. I think that if they wound up, if hospitals were getting the masks they need, I don't think that any of these physicians would be bringing them home to uh, uh, kids or family. I think physicians, but, but these, these things disappear. That's just human nature. They, I'm not saying doctors are bad people. They're better than most. I'm <laughs> just saying that the, if the government has a limited surplus, they can't just distribute them. They have to distribute them like last minute to know exactly where they're needed and distribute them until they have, until they're ahead of the game. So but there are private, private citizens, including a friend of mine who's a pretty famous handbag designer who has all of these contacts in China because of her company, yeah. um, who is in the middle of a $250,000 GoFundMe that is working with hospitals all across the United States to get them um, personal protective gear. Right. Why well, so, 
What? It takes a while. No, I mean, the orders are in. They're happening. Her name's Gellarem Mizrahi, by the way, and everybody should go check it out. I ordered something six weeks ago that was supposed to come the next week. I mean, their orders are in, but let's, again, Germany doesn't have them. Or maybe Germany does have masks. I actually don't know that. I don't know that doctors in other countries are lacking gear. I don't think they are like we are, frankly. Probably right. Not to the levels that we are. No, I, I Trump. I was reluctant to say this, but I did read in a credible place that the, these masks were depleted and, uh, and nobody under, and the Obama administration also left them on, didn't refill the, the numbers. I, I mean, I, I don't want to go easy on people making bad mistakes. I just know that these bad mistakes are always made early on. World War II, bad mistakes were made early on. In the Civil War, bad mistakes were made early on. And we have to be realistic to expect nothing to have gone wrong and everybody to have been way out in front of it. You know, it would be great if it happened that way, but it, it just usually doesn't. It just usually doesn't. That's all. So, Steve, can I get back to something about herd immunity? Yeah, sure. Um, you said that, you know, one, that we, after enough people are infected, that we'd be... Uh, somewhat shielded from the, uh, you know, continued propagation of this. But in order for that to happen, we got to let people out of their houses, houses because they won't get infected uh, otherwise. Right. I, I think that people will, uh, uh, that, so that's an interesting concept too. So the exact thing that's going to um, minimize the number of casualties right now and keep uh, hospital beds from overflowing is also going to uh, decelerate the pace that we develop herd immunity. That's, that's your thinking there? Uh, I, I think that there's, there's, there's something to be if said for that. Herd immunity is going to wind up saving us. How do we get there? Yeah, I, I think the, the ratio of those two things is, is something that's interesting to consider. Um, but uh, you're right. So if you, if you keep people away from each other, the rate at which that you um, develop natural immunity against the virus will also be slowed down. But I, once again, still think that the near-term possibility of just having you know, hundreds to thousands of people essentially dying out in the streets because there's no respirators available for them is uh, a worse fate. So, well, that's what I've been reading. Like, I've been reading that we're all going to get it. It's just we got to figure out. Yeah. We don't want to all get it at once. That's, that's it. I think we're all, we're all, we're all going to. Pretty much everybody will, who can get it will get it. I, I, think, I think so. It's just we want to slow it down so we don't just uh, have any, so we have no longer any hospitals to work with anymore. But of course, but of course as a human being, if we're going to get it anyway, I just as soon get it right now. I mean, I know that that might not be good you for wouldn't, though. You wouldn't because you're going to have no place to go because the hospital beds. Well, if I get it in right now, I might have a place to go. I got to act fast. <laughs> hey, got it right now versus uh, two weeks from now. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's uh, there's some way to think that way. Well, this ought to be interesting now that men and women are locked up indefinitely in quarantine. Guys, do you remember the days when you were always ready to go? Now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. Listen up. BlueChew.com. That's blue like the color blue. BlueChew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. And you can get your first shipment free when you use our promo code SELLER, C-E-L-L-A-R. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. And since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill. So you can be ready whenever the opportunity arises. If you could benefit from more confidence where it counts, and who couldn't, Blue Chew is the fast and easy way to enhance your performance. 
Blue Chew is prescribed online by licensed physicians, so you don't have to go to the doctor's office or wait in line at the pharmacy, and it ships right to your door in a discreet package. They're made in the USA, and since Blue Chew prepares and ships direct, they're cheaper than a pharmacy. And best of all, there's no more awkwardness. Right now, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Visit bluechew.com and get your first shipment free when you use our special code SELLER, C-E-L-L-A-R. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-CHEW.com, promo code SELLER, to try it free. Blue Chew is better, cheaper, and the faster choice. And we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you, Blue Chew. Can I try something just to see if it works here? Yeah. Um, you guys see that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The national shortage of N95 respirator masks can be traced back to 2009 after H1N1 swine flu pa- pandemic when the Obama administration was advised to replenish a national stockpile but did not according to reports from Bloomberg News and Los Angeles Times. So, you know, I'm not blaming Obama. I'm just saying, yeah, and, and, if, and if in 2010 this had hit, we'd be saying, how come Obama didn't replenish the masks? You know, be, it, shit happens. I, I, it sounds very flippant, but I think- Well, the difference there is that, oh, that apparently Trump was warned in no uncertain terms by people that this, there was a catastrophe in the offing. And- but you think he knew, did, did, did they warn him and say, and maybe they did. President Trump, there's a catastrophe in the offing and we don't have masks. I, I have to believe he didn't know we didn't have masks. Now, maybe he should have known. Maybe I, Joe I, I Biden would have known. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I can't speak to that directly, but by, um, I mean, I, I'm told that he didn't order masks after he knew that something was on its way or by, uh, maybe, maybe I, I if he did, off. he should, he should really be, uh, um, raked over the coals for that. Well, he was still saying things like, he was using words like democratic hoax. And I mean, that was, that was not that long ago, right? Well, he, he didn't was, say the virus was a hoax. He said the, 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 the accusation that he was sc- fucking it up was the hoax, but yeah, he, 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 he downplayed the virus wrongly. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Yeah. Consequences again. I if if that w- was very consequential, then we'd expect to see much worse here than Germany and France, and we're not. So well, not yet. We we haven't. We're not going to see numbers in New York for two weeks. That, that per capita per capita, we're better off than those countries, but we're doubling at the same rate that they are. Is my point. So here's two things I'd say to that. One is uh, Perry's point. We we have no idea where we're going. The other point is that the uh, our testing has been so insanely shallow in this country. We have no idea what the denominator is. I, I don't even think we it, we can really compare ourselves I side by side. Other Captain Perry is that was that her name? But but wait, can I say? But that, that, but that <laughs> would mean, nobody calls her Perry anymore. Perry L. Sorry, nobody yeah, calls. That would her mean Perry. we're better off, right? I, all, all my old friends call me Perry. It Perry to me, but okay, Perry L. Sorry. What, what other nicknames hold did on, you hold have? On, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. If the denominator is actually bigger, that if the denominator, we know how many people are, are showing up at the hospitals needing respirators. Mm-hmm. And we know how many people are dying. Yep. If the denominator is five times as big as we think it is, then we really are overreacting, no? That's, that's true. So then, then, well, in terms of overreacting, at the end of the day, it's the number of people that are dying as a result of this infection. That's the number that we need to really react to. But what you're, what, what you're, you have a good point there is that let's say 10 times as many people are infected out there as we think, then the lethality associated with this virus is significantly, like the per case lethality is significantly lower than, than we think it is. 
and we just don't know. We really just, we have no idea how many people out there are infected at this point because our testing has been so woefully inadequate. And yeah, I agree. I agree with you that actually if we found out that 10 times as many people were infected and, you know, we had this number of, of, of deaths, then that would suggest that the lethality of the, the virus was lower than we thought, but we just don't know. We just don't know. Just All right, now let's talk about Perry Allen College. Pardon? Yeah, Perry Allen College. Her nickname was Perry. Her other nicknames, who knows? <laughs> no, no other nicknames, just Perry, that was it. Well, I think Noam wants to talk briefly about Perry Allen College. Well, yeah, I, mean, I was wondering, if, if you, in college, if you were to date Perry L, uh, if, you, if, if, a viro- if a virologist was going to date Perry L, how many days before he might be uh, nervous? Uh, <laughs> she, she was way out of my league, man. I was just, you know, I was just, I was just happy to get a coffee every once in a while. Shut up. Out of your league? Really? Why? Satish and I were very good friends in college, and we used to... Well, Satish is also a very accomplished musician, which, and so is Noam, by the Play way. Play something for us. I can tell. I, your, your, your room, man, that, is, that, is that an oud behind you? That's an oud, yeah, yeah. Nice, nice, sweet. So, um, like, play something on the piano. Come on, turn around and play something. Play Paralyse. Right here. You know, See, I don't. I don't play that. Oops. What happened there? No, I don't. I don't. I really don't play classical kind of stuff. I just play sort of goofy kind of stuff, just like. Hey. You know, I play like uh, just sort of improvisational crap. Very good. <laughs> it's hard to believe, Satish that you could not have had Perry L- and maybe you did, by the way. <laughs> I did not. I, I would say that right here. I did not. I did not. First of all, he, I'm, I know you're married now, but um, I mean, he really was quite the ladies' man in college. Well, I, I that I that is a fact. You can ask Time has been rough, man. Time has been rough. <laughs> he is, he is a, not a reasonably attractive man, but more than that, he's, he's intelligent and he plays piano. And that seems to be a fairly robust, uh, Impressive combination, and yeah, he and you add that to Ro- Perry L's sex positive attitude, <laughs> and you get a you get an almost inevitable situation. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, <laughs> All right, I think we settled coronavirus. Are we, are we, are we, <laughs> any, Satish, anything else you want to tell us? What's well, what's Satish, your? What have you been doing? Are you in lockdown? Or are you an essential worker? Good, great question. So I am technically in lockdown, and so the way that. Um, so my lab is associated with the University of California and then also another um, blood banking company called Vitalant. And so the policy that we have is um, only workers need, that absolutely have to go in to keep like the train on the rails can go in. And then the other exemption is COVID research. And so what I'm really doing right now, we're not doing any HIV work in the lab at this point because it's considered non-essential, but we're really ramping up on doing COVID research in the lab. Um, but I don't go out on the bench and, you know, move pipettes around. So I, I haven't, I don't actually go in, but there are people in my lab that are going in now to. What's the, as far as HIV is concerned, um, you know, I think there's a lot a sense that we've kind of, we've kind of cured it. I mean, if not entirely, at least you can live with it. Is it, what's, yeah. what, what's left to be done on the HIV front? Yeah, I get this question all the time. And, and so, um, you know, basically, uh, once again, if you are a, lucky enough to live in uh, the developed world and have um, access to the latest drugs, you can you know, live a relatively normal lifespan, right? Um, if you just take these uh, drugs, drugs every day. So that's, let's consider for the fact that 
this epidemic is mainly in heavily resource limited settings where they cannot afford to take like 20 or $30,000 a year drug cocktails for the rest of their life. And so those people desperately need some sort of solution, really a cure or a prophylactic vaccine where they can get one or two shots of something and it's a done deal and you can forget about it. So a lot of it just has to do with the economics and feasibility of, of infection there. That being said, even for people who do have access to these drugs, this is an imperfect solution. And really, if you, if you go down the street and talk to anybody who's living with HIV, who's on these drugs, um, they really want to be cured of the disease because um, for number one, the drugs never fully restore health. You know, you, um, you can live a relatively normal lifespan in terms of years, um, but individuals with HIV infection still have all sorts of inflammatory, infl uh, inflammation associated disorders. And um, they tend to show signs of more rapid aging, et cetera, et cetera. And then the other thing for people living with HIV is just the stigma of being infected. And that's a huge, huge, huge thing for people living with HIV infection. Um, so because of all of those reasons, and that's kind of a partial list, there's still a massive interest in, in figuring out how we could completely eradicate the virus or design a vaccine to just stop it before it infects people. Now, what about HIV uh, positive people in the age of Corona, as as a uh, pre-existing condition, where does that uh, where does that leave us? There's so many people working on that exact thing right now. So there are people who are doing, including uh, at my university here, they're um, doing all of these reviews of cases now, where people are co-infected with HIV and COVID to see. Ah! <laughs> we have a video I know that put up of Satish Adano. You know, one of the great like a Hasidic Jew at uh, Musaf service. <laughs> Could you hear it when I played the audio? Yeah. I didn't hear the audio. I just, I just saw the thing. So, you know, that video, one of the greatest days of my whole life, I'm a huge um, Deadhead, like a huge Grateful Dead fan. And uh, that was for this competition that the Grateful Dead had, uh, had for like the best cover song of the country or whatever. And for a while, I was uh, number one in the country. And so on the Grateful Dead wow. like, website. Wow. Yeah, funny. so that, that video and, and my picture was, that was on dead.net for like a few days. Like that was the homepage. And that was like, you know, I took all these screenshots, like sent it to everybody. I was like, woo, it was like one of my favorite days. Um, that was um, really how we, that was like our group of friends in college because we were all pretty big deadheads. Yeah. Was, I, there was um, a good cover of Ripple. Oh, yeah. That was, what's it called? It was, where they, they clips of people all over the world. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know what it's called. Sort of like a collage of peace or something. But it was yeah. a whole series of covers, and Ripple was Ripple, which is a Grateful Dead song for our listeners who may not be who may not be familiar with that. Um, but you, you were talking about uh, HIV. Unless you want to talk about more about the dead. No, no, no. Um, sorry, well, you, you just asked me a specific question. I lost my uh, HIV as, as a as a. I you know I feel like a doctor. We're all doctors now. Now, now I remember. Morbidity. So so people are very very interested in that, and um, so uh, people at our university and uh, several other sites are already looking to see if there are differences in outcomes um, in people, um, you know, who who have HIV infection who get infected with COVID, and everything that I've seen so far is not alarming. Actually, I I, um, I think most of the patients that they've um, considered are on are well suppressed so they're on antiretroviral drugs so their their hiv disease is managed but at least in the setting of adequately managed hiv infection um so far the data i've seen doesn't seem to suggest that they're at any greater uh, risk of severe disease uh, when they get infected that, that's based on the data i've seen so far is there anything to this uh and you know i, I spent most of my days reading about COVID. i i kind of find it fascinating and i do yeah. derive some I don't want to say pleasure, but I get, but it is pleasure learning, you know, and uh, is there anything to this? Uh, it could be a crackpot theory because there's more than a few out there. Oh, yeah, there are. 
about uh, countries with a high level of malaria mm-hmm. having a lower susceptibility to COVID because the anti-malarial drugs are also function as anti-COVID drugs. Yeah, I mean, this is the whole thing. And, and this, is, this is where, you know, again, words are really important. And, uh, you know, the things that come out of Trump's mouth, again, have, you know, mass, massive consequences. Um, but, you know, he's definitely made some kind of flippant remarks about the, uh, the efficacy of, of chloric and treat, uh, treatment for this disease. And I'd say, you know, there's enough out there that makes you raise your eyebrows a little bit. I, I certainly haven't seen anything that makes it seem like it's going to be a silver bullet, but it, like everything else out there right now, should be pursued in, you know, in formal clinical studies where you can really see if it's doing anything. But as of right now, I, I can't say that it's really blown my mind, like the data that I've seen. Um, uh, Everyone, but, every single person in the French trial recovered. No? Um, the, the specific French trial that you're talking about, I don't know, but the data that I've seen out there so far do not look that compelling, probably worth pursuing on a larger scale, but nothing where I feel like that's going to be like our, our so this is interesting because you know, this Trump thing again, because I heard what he said, he said, listen, I think it's, I, I, it may work out. It may not have a good feeling about it. And everybody Mm -hmm. went nuts except that today I read that governor Cuomo is going to start using this in the New York hospitals. And, huh. and he's an angel. He's just wonderful, right? But So he's actually using it, and he's an angel. And Trump says, now, I mean, now Governor Cuomo didn't say he has a good feeling about it, but mm-hmm. I don't think you're giving it out in the New York hospitals if you don't have a pretty positive feeling about it. So what's the difference? I don't see any daylight between Trump's words and Cuomo's actions. But Cuomo's an angel, and Trump's a monster. And, and well, gee, that doesn't make me a Trump I mean- supporter. I just don't get it. I've been saying Satish. Satish, Satish, yeah, but whatever. People have called me much worse. Um, uh, First of all, I have not heard Cuomo say that himself, um, so I I don't know that directly. Um, And maybe he's seen, you know, some new data that have come out, come down the pike that are a lot more compelling. Um, Just from what I've seen so far, I haven't seen anything that makes it seem that. Okay, new experimental treatments for COVID-19. Okay. Combination drug therapy plasma serum will be tested on sickest. But see, look at look at this. So, this is this is a, this is a key semantic point here. So, a combination drug therapy and plasma serum will be tested on the state's sickest patients. I'm sure it's entirely worthwhile to to take the provocative sort of preliminary data that are out there on chloroquine to test them formally, and that's what is being done in in a setting like this. So, the emergency rooms right now are giving us an opportunity to test candidate drugs that are promising. But what you can't do is say that they're effective um, until you've actually formally tested them. And that's, that's what's happening there, right? I mean, so, they're, they're, they're using, I mean, basically what's happening, and this is not for chloroquine, but it's for a whole bunch of small molecule drugs and even, you know, a biologics, a whole, whole bunch of different drugs out there. They're using people showing up at the emergency right, uh, room right now, you know, under these compassionate use scenarios to, to collect uh, robust clinical data on how all these things can actually save lives. Okay, but, but I'm just saying they're not they're not testing uh, you know four leaf clovers and uh, you no, know. no sure. So, and then here's the New York Times said chloroquine showed encouraging signs in small early testing of coronavirus. Uh, you know, not, I don't see anything dramatically different in the language that I'm reading in the Times USA Today and Trump saying and maybe it will, maybe it won't, but I have a good feeling about it. And and they act as if what he said was just monstrous. And it's just, you know, I mean, I wish you wouldn't have said it. I think what's it. monstrous is that he's saying that the churches are going to be full for fucking Easter. Yes. That's monstrous. Yeah, that might be... Uh... I agree with that. That is monstrous. 
I mean, that's like absolutely sociopathic. Well, I think he said he, he hopes for that outcome. I mean, hopes. Well, that's like, a little different, Periel. Saying you hope for it, we all hope for it, don't we? Yeah, but it's different if I hope for it than if the president of the fucking United States goes in front of the entire country and starts giving these like delusional speeches. I mean, it's insane. Agreed. Thank you. Know, you. Actually, here's a Forbes headline just came out. Show, uh, uh, one of the trials showed no benefit in first but small limited control trial. So that's yeah. And maybe, and maybe the truth is somewhere in between, you know. And the other thing too is like you know with all of these clinical trials, right? There's uh, there's multiple dimensions going on here, right? You have different populations, you know. There are different socioeconomic factors that go in there, different underlying genetics, and you know maybe something that works in one population is not going to work in another population, which doesn't mean that the other results were not valid, right? I mean, there's a lot of things to consider there. What a lot of things to consider. Which one, again, what's that? What kind of a doctor is your wife? Actually, uh, directly relevant to this chloroquine thing. My wife is a rheumatologist. Um, I'm asking Jewish or Indian. Actually, well, I, I married a. I married, no, I married a Jindian. I married a Jindian. I, I like to joke because my wife. It's so weird. I met her in San Francisco, but my wife grew up in Boston, like 20 minutes away from me. I'd never met her back there, but she's like me, where she's you know born and brought up in Boston, but she's Indian, right? But then she's basically a Jewish girl because she went to Brandeis. So she's sort of like an Indian Jewish girl, which is kind of, it's, I'm basically like an Indian Jewish dude. It's, it's really weird how this all well, happened. Well, I, I performed at an event for uh, M. Night Shyamalan. No way, did you? You know, the, the, the Indian uh, director, because it was his father's 85th birthday, or 80th birthday, one of the two. And he had me, he hired me. I don't know why he didn't hire Aziz or an Indian guy. He certainly could afford anybody he wanted. Yeah, sure. He hired me to perform for his father. I felt quite at home amongst the Indians uh, there. And there were more than a few lovely young Indian ladies that uh, probably You're wouldn't not have anything. So, not so shabby, huh? Not so shabby. But the, uh, Indian women can be quite spectacular. I will say that. Yeah, I can't, I can't argue with you there. I can't, I can't argue with you. I guess that's why I married one. Um, but she, uh, yeah, so she's a rheumatologist. So she mainly treats um, uh, patients with rheumatoid arthritis, um, lupus, uh, just a broad range of autoimmune diseases. But you know, a lot of her lupus patients are on hydroxychloroquine. And actually, there's been a shortage of chloroquine. Right, because that's exactly. People have been buying up all of the uh, chloroquine. So she's had all these patients that are frantically reaching out to her being like, I can't get my medication. And so all of a sudden, you have this drug. And I'm completely in support of it being uh, studied in clinical trials. If it's promising, it should be studied, studied formally. But what we don't want to do is prematurely get out this message that, you know, it's going to be the silver bullet. So people start hoarding it like freaking toilet paper and the people who need it to stay alive at this point, independent of coronavirus, uh, their lives are, are at risk. That's that's dangerous, right? Where are you? I posed a question on Facebook last night. Not a question, but, I, but an idea. An ocean, I thought it was an interesting one. Um, maybe it wasn't. Okay. But I, I, I pose, I, I basically, the point that no matter how much you might dislike Trump, mm -hmm. I think uh, anybody would agree that if it, the choice was between a ah. cure for this tomorrow mm -hmm. and getting rid of Trump, which would you choose if you had to make that choice? Are you serious? A cure for this thing tomorrow. All right. So that's the point that I kind of made. I said I, on Facebook, I said, you know, if chloroquine works or whatever it's called, that would probably help Trump. You know, because I he. I don't. I don't give a crap. If I could, if I could get something right now that would cure everybody tomorrow, I. I don't care. I would definitely take it, even if he stuck around. Well, that, uh, that, yeah. That's the point I made, and and, and, then and lots of people. I was chastised by a mutual friend that I won't mention his name on Twitter for for what he considered to be an ignorant 
a comment, but I disagree with him, and I'm I'm sure we're still friends. But anyway, I'm on your side with that one. I think. Pardon? I, th I think I'm on your side with that one. But uh, in any case, um, Noam, do you have any? Noam, you you haven't been talking for the past few minutes, so I think that I, I was assuming you're researching something, but maybe you just tuned out. I, I got nothing to say. I I I, I shot. You know, I said I said what I wanted to say. I'm listening to you guys. I would like um, for, for, for guidelines for um, not leaving the house, because my understanding, and Noam, I believe this is what you're doing as well, is not leaving the house is not leaving the fucking house. It's not going to the supermarket and going for walks in the park and taking your kids out on a scooter. I mean, it seems insane. Hmm. I don't leave the house. I know. But what about a walk? I mean, you know, uh, first of all, exercise is important for the immune system. Let's sure. face it. And vitamin D is too, actually, getting some sunlight. And I read important. masturbation. And that was a topic on a recent episode of uh, This Week at the Comedy Cellar. One of the topics was that masturbation boosts the immune system. So that's why I know that. <laughs> I also know it because it makes sense. Because you never get sick. <laughs> I do get sick, but imagine how sick I'd be if I didn't masturbate. Have you seen the, uh, the Pornhub usage statistics and how they're just going through the roof during this whole thing? What's that? Have you seen the Pornhub usage statistics? Oh, no, I, I haven't seen, but that makes certainly it's makes sense. It's exponential during this period because everybody's just cooped up at home with nothing to do. Well, I'm funny. glad that the economy is not, is somebody's benefiting. Oh, somebody's making money, yeah. I'm sure there's people are making money, you know, I mean, um, yeah, there's people that are making money from this. Very, most of us are losing it, but a few people are benefiting. I guess companies that make respirators are obviously doing well. Would you um, buy a respirator if you could buy one, Dan? Why would, would, do I need my own at home? Yeah, would you? I, I think I might. But huh. can we, can, is it something you can use by yourself or, <laughs> or do you bring it with me to the emergency room when I go? <laughs> That's not a bad idea, I guess. <laughs> It, it, I was looking them up. They're very complicated pieces of machinery. I can see why it's hard. Like, how is General Motors going to start churning out respirators? The respirator itself can kill you. If it's not made correctly, you're saying. Yeah, it has a very sensitive software and feedback uh, equipment. And, you know, uh, I, who knows what goes into a respirator? I'm, I'm sure hopeful they, they that a lot of people before they got them right. One, but it is, po I, you know, I... Uh, you know, you, 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 there was a, I think somebody that was 18 years old that just died and I, they didn't mention her name because she, she was under 18, she's a minor. I don't know any details whether she had pre-existing conditions, but you hear these stories about young people that if, even if they don't die, they're, they, they're in dire straits in, in the ICU. And, uh, and yeah, of course, we're all dying to know if they have uh, underlying conditions so we can make ourselves feel better. But what we don't know is, I mean, what, 30,000 people died of the flu, like, Right. Every single one of these stories is now in the papers, and we have no way of gauging whether this is actually noteworthy or you could you could find a story like this a couple times a week in good times, you know? Uh, who knows? Who knows? I, I seem to think this is more serious. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sold that it's serious, but, but obviously a newspaper article about a young person who finds herself uh, close to death is just anecdotal. It doesn't prove anything. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if it proves anything, but it, it, it keeps me from getting back to sleep because I usually read right. these stories in the middle of the night and I wake up and I, I want to read something. And then I have to find another story to calm me down. Oh, I'm, I'm convinced that if I get it, I'm going to die. I'm, I'm convinced I'm going to die if I get it. 
I had no, a call for two why, weeks. Why, why is that out of curiosity? Why, why do you think so? Uh, you may not come across on camera, but I'm just not as I'm just not the most robust, burly person you've ever met in your life, and and uh, I just think this, this I'm no match for this virus, and I and I feel like when I get coughs, they linger. I don't know mm -hmm. if that's related or not. My wife gets pneumonia, bronchitis, so she she is seems more vulnerable even than I am. But I don't I don't have any underlying conditions. I don't have a high blood pressure. I mean, I I I ought on paper I would not. I'm premium elite for my life insurance policy, you know, which means that they don't think I'm going to die. So that's probably. I would, I would suggest that that would probably mean you'd make it through, though, as I said, you might not have the best week of your life and you won't be playing uh, music that week. And also, I'm so fucking scared of, a, you know, getting a, a tube down my. Oh, yeah. Do they push you to sleep for that? Uh, dude, I don't know, but that, that uh, it sounds nightmarish. It sounds really horrible. Yes, it does. I was reading about people on ventilators and they can't talk and they feel helpless. I just, who would want to go through this? Even if you live, it's horrible. It sounds miserable. It sounds really, really miserable. All right. Well, that was, a, that was good. Awesome. On that note, huh? Wait. Thank you, Satish. Th thank you, guys. Satish, you are you by far the smartest friend Periel has ever produced. <laughs> all, oh, my yeah. friends, all my friends are smart. You guys don't get Not like Satish. Credit. Not like Satish. No, no, no. Nobody by the way, my, Satish. my wife is Indian, too, by the way. My wife is Indian. Oh, awesome. Really? She's, yeah. she's Indian Puerto Rican. Dude, that sounds awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's even better than Indian Jewish. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm wicked smart because I went to the University of Arizona, which is like uh, basically the Harvard of the Southwest, right? <laughs> Perio went to, to University of Arizona? Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> they see me like twice a week and spend hours of time and they just know nothing about me. It's just, it never ceases to amaze me. <laughs> we didn't know that they called you Perry back in your <laughs> flapper years. It's like Barack Obama, they used to call him Barry. You're like uh, Perry, Perry, Barry. Okay, nice. so let's just uh, conclude uh, by by reminding our listeners that they can give us feedback, questions, and comments on uh, comedyseller at podcast.com. And if they go to my Instagram, they can find com, right? Yeah. And then if they go to me at Periel Ashenbrand, they can find this information about Gellera Mizrahi who is, I think, surpassed the $30,000 mark and is disseminating um, personal protective gear to all hospitals across the United States, which is really incredible. Amazing. And also okay, my so screen is totally fucked up and I have no idea how to fix it. So, right, so Noam, any, any other thoughts or uh, we conclude on that? Uh, I just want to say it's been a super pleasure meeting all of you and uh, talking to you and uh, Periel it's always a blast interacting with you on any level um, and I hope I can so nice all y'all again and when all of this clears up hopefully um, sooner than later you have to come visit us awesome. in New York and come by the cellar and play with Noam's band you guys could I would that'd be awesome uh, Periel I have a question that, that photograph behind you is that like a kind of pretentious artsy fartsy picture of your son that you that you had done that photograph of my son was taken by um the photographer the very controversial photographer terry richardson who is um one of my dear friend's husbands so controversial why 
Well, I'll send you, um, you, you, you don't know this, the whole, um, I mean, Terry Richardson, he was like the first kind of famous guy to deal with the Me Too movement. Oh, oh yeah, you, you told me that story. Yeah, yeah, no, Brilliant photographer. Nice all right, well, be well, everybody. Don't eat all your quarantine food. I don't want everybody to be fat when I see you again. <laughs> Can I make a suggestion to Dan and Periel? Actually, Periel's better. Get, go on Amazon.com and get yourselves a better webcam if we're going to be doing this for the next three months. You see how my picture is very clear? I, at least I just use a computer. Yeah, it's, that's not good. Get yourself a decent webcam. Do All it right. right. Do we have to do this on the show or can we do this later? I think it's entertaining. <laughs> but okay, we don't have to. I don't mind discussing show business, not show business, but show business on the show. I've done it before and been chastised, but uh, all right, be well, everybody. And Wait, but I actually need you guys to help me. Satish, you don't have to sit through this. Oh, where can they find you, Satish? Where can our, our listeners, if they want to learn more about your work? Yeah, so there, um, there's two things. So one is uh, my, my lab website is just pillilab.ucsf.edu. Um, so P-I-L-L-A-I-L-A-B. Yeah, pillilab.ucsf.edu, which just kind of uh, gives a broad overview of the type of stuff that we do in my lab. And then I also have like a personal website that I admittedly have not updated in like 10 years, um, which is supersatish.com, which is where I have all my music stuff and other crap. I'm into, you know, vintage cars and all this other jazz. And it's like my, my nonsense website. Oh yeah, there's my that's my YouTube channel where I have a whole bunch of... But a lot of people are going to be listening to this audio only, right on... on on serious, I think we're just obviously just doing the audio. But in any case, uh, is that also so? Be well, everyone. Uh, stay safe, as they say. Thank and, you. Uh, yeah, be well, be well, all of you guys. See you guys soon. Take care. Bye. 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 Bye.